Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Ian was much kinder to me than when I introduced him when he was speaking, so a better man, let's just put it at that. Um, So yes, good morning everyone, it's great to be with you this morning. It's actually the first time I've preached since we went to four services in The Mermaid, it's great to be back. Um, This week we are finishing our Summer of Love series, so unfortunately the Summer of Love is coming to an end. Sad, I know. Uh, In this series we've been going through the New Testament book of 1 John, which is one of three letters that the Apostle John wrote to the churches that he was involved in leading around Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. This is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, the same John that uh, wrote the book of Revelation, but most importantly, the same John that spent three years as one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples. So it should come as no surprise that the main theme of his letter is love. And last week, Liam, or L-I-Am, as he now wants to be called apparently, who knew? Um, He spoke about how in a world full of very visible hate, uh, Jesus uh, makes the the love of God visible, um, but also how we, as Jesus' followers, make that love visible too in the way that we love one another. And this week we're going to finish the series by looking at 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to see how faith in Jesus equips us to love people who are not like us. Okay, so we're going to read from 1 John chapter 5 verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So over the last few weeks as we work through John's letter, we've heard how loving God involves loving other people that the two are inseparable, that you can't say that you love God if you don't also show love to other people. And in this chapter, John kind of ups the ante a little bit by bringing out uh, what he means when he says other people. Verse one, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Whoever has been born of him. John is saying that if we love God, our heavenly Father, then we will love all of his children not just the people from our group or from our tribe, the people that look like us and sound like us and think like us, but all of God's children, people from every tribe. This is how the Apostle Paul, a contemporary of John's, put it in his letter to the church in Galatia. He said, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is therefore now neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. 
Paul and John are both making the same point, and both to churches who are trying to build community in very diverse, multicultural cities. They're both saying that the world may divide people into those age-old divisions of class and gender and race, but those divisions have no place in the family of God. In the family of God, all of us are to be equally loved and welcomed in. All of us are to be equally regarded as having worth and a contribution to make. Which is not to say that the things that make us different are not important, just that they're not of primary importance. Paul doesn't say that we are now all the same in Christ, there is no difference. He says we are all now united, we are one in Christ, there is no division. Or to put it another way, there is to be unity in our diversity. This is obviously not a new idea that John and Paul have stumbled across. This is one of the main narrative arcs running all the way through scripture. In the Bible's creation account, the book of Genesis, we don't read that God made a white English man called Henry and placed him in the Garden of Eden. And he thought, this white English man is great. I'm gonna make more of these white English men. And so he did, and they all sat around smoking pipes and talking about cricket until one day women and ethnic minorities appeared and ruined everything. Even though white Englishmen have often acted as if that is the case, that was obviously not how things started. In the beginning, we are told that God made Adam and Eve in his image, and from them came every tribe, every nation, every race of people on earth. Now, whether you view the Genesis account as poetic or literal, the point remains the same. Every person alive today is a child of God made in the image of God which means that the diversity we see all around us is not an accident. It is part of God's master plan. Partly, I think, because it reflects the triune nature of God, one God in three persons, the embodiment of unity in diversity. But partly because I think that's just, how the way, that's just the way God wanted it. That's what he likes. Do you remember the film Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with Morgan Freeman and Kevin Costner? It's the first film, first PG I ever saw at the cinema, which says how old I am. Um, well, in it, there's this scene where a little white English girl sees Morgan Freeman's character, the first black man that she has ever seen in her life, and she looks up and says, did God paint you? And Morgan Freeman says, in the way only Morgan Freeman can, I'm not gonna do an impression of Morgan Freeman. I know, sad, isn't it? He says, for certain, because God loves wonderful variety. It is that variety that gives life its richness and its color. From the different ways that we look and the different ways we dress, the different ways we dance and celebrate and make music and art and food, all of that brings a vibrancy and depth to life. And there is a depth and a breadth that comes to a community when it not only celebrates those things within one another, but when it's also willing to listen to one another's stories and experiences and learn from one another's wisdom and insights. In the book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes about his two best friends, Ronald and Charles, and what happened when Charles died. He said in one way, he now had Ronald all to himself, so he now had more of Ronald. But then he realized that there's actually a part of Ronald that only Charles could bring out. And now that Charles was gone, that part of Ronald was gone too, and so he actually had less of Ronald, not more. And he's saying that we can only fully experience one another in community. And if that is true, which I think that it is, how much more true is it that we are only fully able to experience an infinite God by community? 
This chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, says, we are to search for the trace of God in the face of the other. Never believe that God is defined and confined to the people just like you. God is larger than any nation, language, culture, or creed. He lives within our group, but he also lives beyond. So the more diverse the community, the more fully the community can know and experience God. But wait a minute, you might say. Didn't God just choose one family to bless and then choose the descendants of that one family to be his people? Well, yes, but it's not the whole story. Firstly, if you think that Israel was a homogenous nation, think again. The family line of Abraham um, is full of interracial and intercultural marriages. Joseph, for example, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, married an Egyptian woman. And so their children became one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then just think about how the nation of Israel began. After hundreds of years of being enslaved in Egypt, God sends Moses to set the people free. And when he leads them out of Egypt, we are told that many other people went with them. Actually, the Hebrew for that phrase literally means a mixed multitude. Where did this mixed multitude come from? Well, Egypt was a diverse and ethnically mixed nation. It was a world superpower of the time, and every time it went out to conquer a nation, it brought back the best of that nation to be its civil servants and to be its slaves. And so when Moses appears on the scene and says that his God wants to rescue his people and lead them out, and he proves that by sending these 10 plagues against Egypt, it's not hard to imagine that there's a whole bunch of people who look at Egypt and look at Moses and think, actually, I want to go with you guys. Then think about this. In Numbers 12, we are told that Miriam, Moses' sister, has a problem with Moses' new wife because she is black. Did you know that? Moses marries a Cushite, which literally means from the people to the south of Egypt, from Africa. And Miriam complains about it. And do you know what God does? He strikes her down with leprosy until she repents. We're told that he makes her skin as white as snow. I mean, talk about poetic justice. God is apparently a big supporter of interracial marriage. So the nation of Israel starts with a variety of different people groups. And not only that, the Hebrew scriptures and especially the prophetic scriptures um, teach that God's plan was always to include people from all four corners of the earth. Written down in Israel's laws were commands and instructions to welcome anyone from anywhere at any time. And I've just managed to get rid of my notes. This is interesting. This has never happened to me before. Give me one second and I'll get it back. There we go. It's all okay. Don't have to do this from memory. So the nation of Israel, that wouldn't happen, believe you and me. The nation of Israel wants to be, uh, was going to be a community open to all because it was not built upon an ethnic um, or racial identity. It was built upon faith in the one true God. And we get to the New Testament and we get to the way that the church, the new Israel, begins. And we see that it starts in a very similar way. Almost in order to make the point that the church was to be a diverse community, God decides to start it during the Passover in Jerusalem. In a time and a place where, as Luke puts it in Acts chapter 2, God-fearing Jews from every tribe, uh, from every nation under heaven were present. Just look at this list that he gives. So when we're told a few verses later that 3,000 people came to faith and joined the new church community, that 3,000 people came from these nations. 
I mean, it's like choosing the Olympic Village as the birthplace of the church. It is making a point. The message could not be any clearer. God is saying, my church is for everyone, for people from every nation. And then the Bible ends with the book of Revelation with John's prophetic vision of what is to come. A great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, and people group. Standing together as one community, worshiping Jesus. So unity and diversity is where we have come from. Unity and diversity is where we are headed. And so unity and diversity, a community that loves and welcomes all of God's children is the thing that we should be pursuing. Well, sure, you might say. Unity and diversity, that is a great idea. It's a nice phrase. But what does it really look like? How do we bring together people from very different backgrounds and build a community that truly is unified, especially in a place like London, and especially in a church like ours that at the moment is currently majority white and majority university educated? Well, maybe a metaphor will help us here. It's one that I borrowed and modified from Jonathan Sachs's book, The Home We Build Together. Think about the different ways that you might have someone live with you. They could be a guest. Someone who stays with you for a night or a weekend, maybe even longer. If this was outside London, they may be given a guest room. If it's inside London, you know they're sleeping on the floor in your lounge. <laughs> but either way, they are welcomed in, they're looked after, they're cooked for, they're not expected to contribute much. I don't know, maybe they help clear the table, maybe they bring a bottle of wine and some flowers, but that's pretty much it. Routines may change slightly when they're around, but actually everything stays pretty much as it is. And then secondly, the person staying with you could be a lodger. Now, this is obviously quite a different relationship. There is a contract involved, maybe. There's an exchange of money. There's some give and take. The lodger will have their own room, maybe even their own space in the kitchen. They'll be expected to play a part in helping the house to function. But whilst there is more give and take, there's obviously the cards are still held by the homeowner. And then thirdly, what if the person isn't a guest or a lodger, but is just part of the family? What if the person is a child or a grandparent or maybe a foster kid? Think about how different that is. Think about how much more their views and concerns and needs are taken into consideration when the family makes decisions together. Think about how much more of an impact they have upon how everything gets done. Jax and I have two young daughters. And if you happen to look through our window at 5.30 of an evening, please don't do this, but if you did happen to look through our window, you'd often find us dancing around our living room to Disney songs or having tickle fights. Now, this is not something that we used to do. I mean, we may have been a bit uptight back then, but before the girls came along, we didn't do this. Now we do. The girls have changed us and fundamentally changed us. We laugh so much more now we have them than when we didn't. And actually, as they grow up, I fully expect them to change us even more, that actually we're going to be shaped by them just as much as they shape us. And I think that unity and diversity should look much more like scenario three, building a home together, as Jonathan Sachs puts it, than it should be scenario one and two. But why is it that scenario three is so hard to get to in community? Why do we often stay at scenario one and two, or even actually um, stay at diversity in proximity, different people, different houses, or even diversity in hostility, those houses turned against one another? 
Why is it so hard to truly build a diverse community where everyone is not only welcomed in, but truly valued and listened to and learned from? Why is that so hard for us to do, even as the church, as God's people? Well, I think that may be because we are more aligned to the values of the world than we would like to admit. So the world is a phrase that John uses in this chapter. And it's just his shorthand for anything that is in opposition to the way of Jesus, to the way of love. He's not saying that everything in here in the church is good and everything out there in the world is bad, although that's often how the church is taught it. He's saying that, uh, rather he means that the world is the ideas and beliefs and practices that constrain people and stop them leading a life of love and flourishing, which means that you can find the values of the world in the church just as much as you can find the values of Jesus in people who would never and have never stepped foot inside a church. And one of the ways that the world is at odds with God's goal of unity in diversity is our tendency to tribalism. And by that, I don't just mean the fact that we find it often most comfortable to uh, surround ourselves with people who look just like us and sound just like us and think just like us. But the way we tend to view people from our group as normal or good or even better than others. And we tend to view people from other groups not just as different, but as inferior and bad and even a threat to us. Now, tribalism can work its way uh, self out in different ways. Sometimes it just ignores and overlooks people from different groups. As I mentioned, uh, Jackson and I have two daughters, and so the film that I have now seen more than any other film in my life is Frozen. Obviously, it's Frozen. Now, I have to say, I do think that it is great. It has strong female characters, it subverts the normal kind of Disney fairy tale narrative, and at its heart is a story of how sacrificial love can melt a heart of ice, which is a great thing to be able to talk to your four-year-old about. If you don't know the story, it's about two sisters, Elsa and Anna. Elsa is the older, she has magical powers in order to protect her and Anna and everyone else. Her parents lock them up in a castle, which is interesting parenting, I know, but who are we to judge? Anyway, a spoiler alert, the parents die tragically at sea, and the girls grow up as orphans in this castle. We then jump a few years later when, to when Elsa has come of age and she's going to be crowned Queen of Arendelle and they're going to open up the gates. And Anna, or Anna is more than a little excited about this. She makes this whole big song and dance, this is Disney after all, about how excited she's been. She's been stuck in the castle for 18 years. She can't wait to meet everyone and who knows, she may even meet the one. Spoiler alert, she does. Spoiler alert, doesn't work out so well. <laughs> Anna is excited that they're opening up the gates because there will be actual, real, live people. And she's been kept from actual, real, live people, and now she gets to meet actual, real, live people. The problem with this? This whole song, she's been dancing past almost 30 actual, real, live people. They just happen to be her servants. Anna doesn't even see them as actual real-life people. These are the people that raised her after her parents died. They're the people that looked after her. But to her, they're not people with hopes and dreams to discover and wisdom to uh, share from. They are just the help. Tribalism values people who are just like us, and people who aren't like us can appear invisible to us and actually even less than human. Tribalism also leads to prejudice. It makes it hard to see people from other groups as individuals. We tend to view them en masse 
and we actually allow the experience we have with one to affect the opinion we have of the whole, especially if that experience is negative. Let me give you an example. I cycle in London, and as most of you who were cycling in London know, you often get cut up by motorists. Now, when that happens by a car, I think, well, I won't tell you what I think, but my <laughs> anger is directed at that one motorist. But when I get cut up by a taxi, that is not an individual, that is a representative for every taxi driver in London. My anger is now directed at all of them. Now, I know that there are good taxi drivers and bad taxi drivers. I know there are more good taxi drivers than there are bad taxi drivers. I even know and love taxi drivers. They are my friends. But in that moment, I can't see the individual. I just see the group because I am from the tribe of cyclists and they are from the tribe of taxi drivers. Has that ever happened to you when you judge a group on the actions of the few? A couple of weeks ago, I was at the Lambeth Community Pride Awards. Our block of flats has a community garden, and we were nominated for the best food-growing garden in Lambeth, which is a big honor. We didn't win, but it was an exciting evening anyway. At the awards, I had the chance to meet these two guys. Mohammed and Solomon, the founders of Brixton Soup Kitchen, who did win uh, the award they were up for, which was Best Voluntary Organization. Both Mohammed and Solomon are youth workers in Lambeth, actually right around Stockwell, where I live. And they've been uh, youth workers for years, and we got chatting about the youth that they work with and also their experience of being black Muslim men in this part of the world. And they were talking about the prejudice and the fear from other people that they constantly have to deal with and constantly have to try and subvert, both because of their faith and also because of their race. And about how people focus just on gang violence when they think about young people in Lambeth. Now, people always make assumptions and judgments that just aren't true for the vast majority of the young people that they work with. Mohammed kept on getting his phone out and showing me pictures and videos of his young people helping out at the soup kitchen and collecting food and even buying food with their own money in order to give out to people on the streets. He was like a one-man PR firm trying to change the way people see the young people that he so clearly loves, trying to undo the prejudice that tribalism causes. Now, you can explain the existence of tribalism and prejudice using evolutionary biology. You can explain it using psychology, and I need to identify and belong. You can explain it theologically with the whole idea of inherited sin. You can explain it a number of different ways, but it is clear that it presents a problem to us, living in a city like London, one of the most multicultural cities in the world. And it presents a challenge to us as a church who wants to increasingly become more diverse and representative of this city and the people that we love. How do we overcome the world's tribalism? How do we become a community that easily loves and welcomes all of God's children, that builds a home together, that enjoys real unity in diversity? Well, John's answer, unsurprisingly, is faith in Jesus. In verse 5, John says it is faith in Jesus that gives us the ability to overcome the world's division and love all of God's children. It is faith in Jesus that helps us to break down barriers and welcome in strangers and love people who are not like us. Because it is faith in Jesus that uniquely gives us both the motivation and the means to love like this. 
The person who believes that Jesus was the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, sent to earth in order to die and by his death to reconcile us to the Father, understands that all of us were once strangers to God. All of us were once on the outside. All of us needed someone to give up their position of privilege and comfort and cross the divide and welcome us in. This is what John was getting at with all the water, blood, and spirit talk in the second half of the chapter. See, this letter was John's response to um, a group of people who were teaching that Jesus wasn't actually the Son of God, he was just a man, and that his death didn't actually achieve anything, and we need to kind of work out our salvation by ourselves. And this group taught that the spirit of the Christ descended upon the man Jesus at his baptism, but then left him before the cross. Which is why that John points out that Jesus was revealed as the Christ, not just through water, not just at his baptism, but also by blood through his death on the cross. You see, if Jesus was just a man, then the cross is just a sad end to a good life. But if Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, both fully man and fully God, then the cross has the power to change us. Because the cross reveals to us a God who left behind the comfort of his home and enters in and identifies and experiences the pain and the mess of lives of people who were very unlike him and even people that hated him. And instead of judging, judging them, this God-man gave his life for them in order to reconcile them to the Father and to one another. The story of the cross is of Jesus obliterating the greatest divide there's ever been in the universe, that between a holy, loving, just, righteous God and us, weak, sinful, broken people. And him giving up his life for us and forgiving us for everything that we had done wrong. So the cross removes any feelings of superiority, of feeling like we are better than other people because we understand that we are all so broken, all so full of hate and prejudice, that all of our love is just so weak and narrow that we needed someone to save us and transform us. But it also removes any feelings of inferiority, of being worth less than others, as we realize that Jesus willingly did that for all of us because of his great love for us. And for the person who not only understands this, but is united to this Jesus through faith, there isn't just a motivation to kind of follow his example to love like him. There's actually power available to be transformed into someone who is able to love this way too. This is why that John can say that for the person who has faith in Jesus, God's commands to love are not burdensome because we are empowered to follow them as we are filled by his spirit. This is just what happened to John. There's a story in uh, Luke's gospel about um, uh, the disciples going through Samaria um, and wanting to stay there and the, um, the Samarians didn't want them there. And so they basically snubbed um, and the Samarians are kind of the Jews' ethnic enemy. And so what does John do? He asks Jesus if he can call down fire from heaven to destroy them. I mean, at this point in his life, John is still a little more than tribal. Hasn't quite worked out the loving people not like him thing yet. But after the cross, after the resurrection, after the Spirit has been poured out upon the disciples, guess who it is that they choose to send to Samaria and to pray for a new bunch of believers that the Spirit will be poured down upon them? 
And guess who it is that then preaches in every single Samaritan town as on his way back to Jerusalem? That's right, it's John. If I was a little more Pentecostal, I might even say that John went from calling down fire, literal fire on his enemies, to calling down spiritual fire on his enemies. That's the transformation that faith in Jesus being united to him can bring. And that power isn't just contained to the pages of the New Testament. It's available for all of us today. Some of you may know the story of Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian alive during the Second World War who she and her family rescued many Jews from the Nazi Holocaust. And unfortunately, in 1944, she was captured by the Gestapo and she was sent to a concentration camp with her sister, Betsy. Betsy died in the camp due to the harsh conditions there, but um, Corrie survived and she put it down to her faith in Jesus, not just kind of her physical survival, but her spiritual and emotional survival, that she didn't come out as someone completely consumed by hate. And after the war had ended, Corrie traveled around Germany with this amazing message, speaking in churches, that God forgives. She often reminded people that when we confess our sins to God, he cast them into the deepest ocean forever. And she writes in her autobiography, The Hiding Place, that on one of these occasions, she's finished speaking, at the end, people are coming up to her, and then she sees this guy come towards her. And she realizes this is one of the guards from the camp where she was. And he comes up to her and he puts his hand out, wanting to shake her hand, and he says, A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. The guard obviously didn't remember Corrie, but she remembered him. And she describes how she's flooded with these memories and these emotions of her time in the camp, of her sister dying there. And her blood turns to ice in her veins and she just freezes with her hands at her side. The guard goes on, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time I've become a Christian and I know that God has forgiven me for the horrible things that I did there. But I'd like to hear it from your lips too, Fraulein. Do you also forgive me? And again, he sticks out his hand to her. What would you do in that situation? What could you do in that situation? Well, Corrie prays. She says, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much, but you're going to need to supply the feeling. So that's what she did. Woodenly, almost mechanically, she lifts up her hand to greet and meet this other guy's hand. And then she says the most incredible thing happened. It was like this energy started in her shoulder and worked out through her hand until um, it joined both of their hands together. And this healing warmth flooded her whole being and tears came to her eyes. She says, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. And for a long moment, they grasped one another's hand, former prison guard, former prisoner, united by God. She writes, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did right then. Not many of us will have to love across such a difficult divide as Corrie ten Boom did. But all of us are called to love people who are not like us. And the power that was available to Corrie and available to John, which enabled them to do that, is still available for each one of us today. Can I have the band back, please? You know, the goal of a truly unified and diverse church right here in London, 
where we easily love people who aren't like us, when we really are building a home together, that may seem like an impossible dream to you. It may seem like something that's just completely out of our power to make happen. It probably seemed like that to the disciples too, when Jesus said that they were going to be his witnesses, not only in Jerusalem and Judea, the place that they knew with people like them, but also to Samaria, the place of their enemies, and to the ends of the earth. But when Jesus told them that they were going to be his witnesses, he also told them something else, that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit to get the job done. And so in just a moment's time, we're going to do that. We're going to ask power from the Holy Spirit to get this job done. But before we do that, I just want to leave you with a question to think about this week. In his gospel, John describes himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Over and over he says that. And I don't think he's saying that because he thinks that Jesus loved him more than the other disciples. I think he said that because that had become his primary identity. In his own mind, he had now become first and foremost someone who was loved by Jesus. Can I ask you, where do you find your primary identity? Is it somewhere other than in Christ and in his community? Do you feel more at home with people with the same skin color as you, the same salary as you, the same background, the same politics, more than you do with the people who share your faith? Why do you think that might be? There might be some good questions to chat to your friends with this week, to think about and to pray about. But why don't we stand and then I'll pray for us. Father God, I pray that you would forgive us for valuing other things more than we value Jesus. I pray that you would forgive us for our prejudice Forgive us for the hate that may exist within us. Forgive us for loving people from our tribe to the exclusion of others. I pray that you would help us to love all of your children. I pray that you would help us here in this church to build a home together, that we would experience unity in our diversity. And Father, we know this is not something that we can do on our own. So, Father, I pray right now for your spirit to fall upon us. Maybe you just might want to hold out your hands. It's just a simple way of kind of physically acknowledging that you want to receive something from God. Holy Spirit, I pray, come flood us with the love of Jesus. Flood us with power that breaks down barriers. Empower us to be a church in this city that is welcome to all, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.